Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gorge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the eyes of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now the question that I'd like us to consider as we start this morning is this. Where is renewal going to come from? And where is renewal going to come from? Of course, there's always an appetite for renewal. Just think about what happens with every election cycle, whether it's Tony Blair or Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn or in Canada, Justin Trudeau or Emmanuel Macron in France or or Brexit or Indiref. All of those political campaigns were conducted with the promise of sweeping change, radical renewal. Where is renewal going to come from? Of course, it's not just a question for the voting public. It's much more pressing when you think about the church. Our denomination, the Church of England, like every mainline denomination, I think, in the UK, has gone over the precipice and is declining astonishingly. Think of the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland, and as it 
fell apart in Quebec before that. Think of the chapels in South Wales. Think of the Church of Scotland, north of the border. Think of what the Church of England has tried to do to reverse the decline. Fresh expressions and hubs and, well, a decade of mission and then another one and then cathedrals and all sorts of hype about how this might be the thing that stems the tide and yet none of it has done anything to turn things around. Where is renewal going to come from? Uh, Closer to home. I think of our constituency, or what I'd call my constituency, I guess conservative evangelicals in the southeast of England. And it feels like we need a reboot. Relationships are frosty. We feel embattled within and without, deeply bruised by recent scandals, divisions exposed. Where is renewal going to come from? Actually, that's too more broadly, isn't it? It's been a bad couple of years for big evangelicalism in the world. Well, where will renewal come from? And then think of our city. Do you know that there is no more urgent need for London this week than that men and women, boys and girls, put their faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ. That is what our neighbours need. That is what our colleagues need. That is what our friends, my friends, actually need. And what that would require is a radical renewal of the people of God, some actual zeal and missionary boldness. And where is that going to come from? Well, we're in 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel is an ancient history of the kingdom of God's people uh, from, the, from three millennia ago or more. Uh, from one perspective, you could describe 1 Samuel, what we've read so far in the book, as the living God's manifesto for kingdom renewal. And certainly it begins with an image of renewal. Think of of Hannah at the start of the book, this childless woman and desperate for new life, looking to the God of resurrection to raise the dead, praying for renewal and for a child, and then getting an answer to her prayer. And then as we saw, of course, Hannah is not just an individual. She is a picture of the nation as a whole in need of renewal, led by old, blind, corrupt, and faithless leaders. And so the renewal that they need is not just the birth of a child. It's nothing less than a revolution of the elites. The book as a whole, you could describe as being a manifesto for kingdom renewal. And our section, chapters 8 to 11, that we're looking at this morning, again, it is a renewal story. And the story goes from another aging leader with two corrupt sons, just like Eli at the beginning of the book, to, well, to an extraordinary reversal that we'll come to at the end of our time this morning. And the question that that puts before us is where does that renewal come from? Where does it come from? And where will it not come from? Because that's where we start this morning, our first point. Renewal cannot come from a king like the nations. Renewal cannot come from stepping towards the world. Renewal cannot come from a king like the nations. 
uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You can see why the people make the request, can't you, in chapter 8? Uh, the push factor, well, the push factor is the dead end of Samuel. Um, he's old, uh, just like Eli was old at the beginning of the book. And his sons are corrupt, like Hophni and Phinehas were corrupt at the beginning of the book. That's the push factor. The pull factor is the nations all around them. Look, Samuel, what you're doing, it doesn't work. Just look, the, the Philistines... And they've got five cities and five kings. The Ammonites, uh, well, they've got a king, and it works for them. Kings are the future. What do the Philistines and the Ammonites have in common? Well, two things. Number one, they're winning. And number two, kings. But look at verse six. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And what the rest of the chapter is going to show us is that renewal cannot come from a king like the nations. It's worth pausing for a moment to say that the problem is not that they've asked for a king. Um, a human king was always part of the plan for God's people. Actually, that was true from the very opening chapters of the Bible. Um, it, certainly, it was clear by Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In fact, it was already clear and by the time that the law was given in Deuteronomy. In fact, it was clear in Numbers when Balaam, the son of Beor, opened his mouth and prophesied about the blessing that would come on the people of Israel through their human king. The problem is not the idea of a human king. No, the problem is that they want a king like the nations. In other words, they want a king instead of their gods. I look at verse 19. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, so that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Alarm bell should be ringing at that point, and you should be saying, But hang on a second, don't they already have a king who goes out before them? and who fights their battles. Don't they already have a king who brings them salvation? And if you were here last week, you know that the answer to that question is yes, because the Lord rescued them and saved them. He is their king. But they're fed up. We don't want God as our king. We want a king like the nations around us. That'd be better, Samuel. And so... Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. I mean, that's stark, isn't it? What God says is their request for a king like the nations is effectively replacing 
me. What they're saying is that I am not up to the job. Let's get a proper king and stop messing around with prophets and stop messing around with the lords. It is, in other words, apostasy. It's stark. But the thing we need to understand this morning is that renewal cannot come from a king like the nations. It's worth pausing to acknowledge the fact that their request for a king like the nations around them is eminently understandable. Of course, you might just be cynical and think that they're being cynical and think that they're just saying, well, if you can't beat them, join them. But I doubt that they would have put it that way. No, there are times when the pressure from the world outside feels so overwhelming, it feels so unrelenting, that it feels like there is no prospect of any future for God's people without some sort of accommodation. And so we gladly condemn the Victorian church of the 19th century for their compromise with colonialism and jingoism. And we look with disapproval on the German Lutheran church of the 1940s for finding a way to fit in with national socialism. And we judge the Orthodox church of the USSR for selling out to communism. And I guess we're kind of right, aren't we? But they, they probably felt that they had no choice. Samuel, you're old. You're old. There is no future with you. Give us a king like the nations. And then maybe we'll have a shot. If we want to survive, we need to be a bit more like them. I guess many of the leaders of the Church of England feel like they have no choice. We have to make an accommodation with society over gay marriage. How can we hope to survive if we don't? And you know what, to an extent, to an extent, I can sympathize with that. Um, my wife and I, we used to lead a youth group, and at one point we were going through a youth Bible study in the book of Titus. I mean, it happened that for reasons that are slightly different, we asked the same questions this morning. Where is renewal going to come from? And so we asked it as a starter question, what do you think we'd need to do to renew the churches in the United Kingdom? And they were very clear. They quickly settled on a two-pronged strategy for bringing renewal to the church of the United Kingdom. The first prong was to set up a bouncy castle in every church in the country. And there was one in St. Andrews yesterday, actually. Um, so a bouncy castle in every church in the country. And the second prong was to have a van outside every church in the country on a Sunday morning serving bacon sandwiches. And you know what? I can kind of feel the pull of that. You have to give the people what they want. Well, how can we hope? How can we hope to survive in the 21st century when we stand on the wrong side of what people think is the great social justice issue of their day. They might be right, but maybe not for the same reason. We're on the verge of collapse. Every mainline denomination in Europe is on the verge of collapse. Change or die. But here's the problem. Renewal cannot come from a king like the nations. And it cannot come from stepping towards the world. Why not? Well, one Samuel gives us two answers, a long answer, 
and a short answer. Now, the short answer comes in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and it's the thrust of Samuel's speech. Um, If you accept a king like the nations, he says, he won't save you from the oppression of the nations around you. He will just bring their oppression into the midst of God's people. You will be slaves, he says. And whatever slavery is, it is not renewal. Verse 10. The Lord's told him to charge the people what the ways of the king they've asked for will be like. And he says, verse 11, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But did you hear what Samuel says? If you choose a king like the nations, instead of God your king, you will get a king who takes, takes your sons, takes your daughters, takes your fields, takes your vineyards and your grain and your flocks and your servants. You'll get a king who will make you slaves. The point is that God's people are free and our king gives If you're new, if you're visiting with us this morning, you might not know that. Did you know that Christians are the free people of the world? Did you know that we have been set free to live the life that we were made to live? And did you know that our King, the living Lord Jesus, he's not like the corrupt and self-interested leaders we see all around us. He gives and he gives and he gives life and blessing, and peace, and joy, and forgiveness, and ultimately himself. But a king like the nations, a step towards the world, that can only take freedom away, and there is no hope of renewal there. That's the short answer. The long answer takes the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, uh, 23 more chapters to spell out, And the rest of the book of 1 Samuel makes the point that having a king like the nations instead of God's, it just doesn't work. You see, it turns out that their nation-like king does not deliver them or win their battles or bring the judgment that they want. He ends the book alone and defeated and dead. Because it turns out, this is a very important lesson for us, I think, The world is just better at being the world than we are. If we play by the world's rules, the world will win. The world will always win. If we try to become more like the world in the hope of renewal, we will invite slavery within our walls, and then in the end, we will be devoured. It's a dead end. Uh, Choosing evangelical leaders just because they look like they could lead the cricket team is a dead end. 
A strategy of bacon rolls and bouncy castles is a dead end. And the Church of England's attempt to make peace with the sexual revolution is a dead end. I understand it, but it is a dead end. It won't work. Renewal cannot come from a king like the nations. Now, Chloe and Isaac, and Lizzie is obviously over the road, but you can pass this on to her. Um, I know you know this, but renewal and hope and life cannot come from the world. That is not where life is. And so where does renewal come from? We desperately need it. We do. Where does it come from? The extraordinary thing is that 1 Samuel chapters 9 to 11 is actually a story of renewal. You wouldn't expect that, would you? You'd think that after rejecting the Lord and choosing to have a king instead of God, you'd think that this would be a story of death and decline. But it's not. It turns out, as we read through chapters 9 to 11, that the Lord raises up not a king initially like the nations, but the only sort of king who could bring renewal, one empowered by his spirit, one led by his prophets, and one who brings a salvation that is from the Lord. And so that's our our second and hopefully shorter point this morning. Renewal will only come from a king empowered by the Lord. A renewal only came from a king empowered by the king. Let me sketch out what happens in chapters 9 and 10. It starts quite ominously, actually. The first thing that we know about Saul um, is that he's tall, and eventually we find out he's called Saul. And both of those things are ominous because Saul means asked for, which is the kind of king we don't want, the one they asked for. And tall is the same word as proud from Hannah's prayer back in chapter 2. And we know that the Lord is against the proud and brings them low. It's an ominous start. But then it turns out that actually chapter 9 is a story of God lifting Saul up. Saul is a clueless man, a nobody from a humble family who has nothing, and not even his father's donkeys. Um, And then as he goes on this slightly strange donkey hunt, we find out that behind it all, the Lord is actually leading him to Samuel. And not just leading him and providentially arranging that he meets Samuel, but lifting him up so that eventually he climbs up and up to meet Samuel and sits with Samuel to eat with Samuel, one of the princes of the people. Again, go back to Hannah's prayer. Uh, That's chapter 9. In chapter 10, Samuel anoints him as a leader, and there are three signs, and the third is the most significant, uh, chapter 10 and verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave Saul another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Kabir, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Now, uh, later on in the book of Samuel, we're going to ask that question again with quite a different force. But for now, this is a great thing. Saul has become another man. The spirit of the Lord has rushed upon him and he's found prophesying amongst the prophets. And that is good. That is where the king should be where the word of God is, where the prophets are. If we've learned anything from 1 Samuel so far, it is that all hope of renewal starts with the prophets. All hope of renewal starts with the clear hearing and obedience to the word of God. 
But in the second half of chapter 10, Saul is publicly unveiled with that thing about the baggage that you might have read before. We don't have time to go into it now, but it's surprisingly significant. And then comes chapter 11, and that's the passage we did have read. And chapter 11 details the most extraordinary reversal. It's actually a story of incredible grace. The names, the geography, the symbolism of chapter 11, they're so significant. And so first of all, there is Nahash, this king of the Ammonites, who comes in verse 1. His, king literally mean, his name literally means snake um, or serpent. And this snake king comes to Jabesh-Gilead. And Jabesh-Gilead is a famous place. Do you know what Jabesh-Gilead is famous for? Jabesh-Gilead is famous for being disloyal. And the Jabesh-Gileadites do what Jabesh-Gileadites do best, and they try to make peace with the snake king. Except that, as snake kings always do, he overreaches, and he threatens to half-blind them, like Eli was half-blind back in chapter 3. And whilst all this is happening, Saul is in Gibeah. And you know what? Gibeah is also a famous town in the Bible. And it's also famous for just one thing. Gibeah is the place where the worst abomination in the entire history of Israel until now took place. It is the place where Israel showed that they were every bit as violent and sexually deviant and cruel as any of the nations around them. You can read about it in Judges chapters 19 to 21. Although I should warn you, if you do read about it, that those chapters contain horrible sexual violence. Do you see, everything is lined up for a really bad day. You've got the disloyal town that almost surrendered to the serpent king who is on the verge of putting out the eyes and then they send for help to Gabir, um, Abominationville. And when the message gets there, it comes to Saul, the king that they'd asked for instead of God's. This is not going to go well, right? And what are you expecting to happen? What actually happens is a stunning reversal, verse 5. Now look, Saul coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what's wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. They sent the message, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have a salvation. If you want to understand what's going on with the oxen, it's not a very vegan-friendly passage, is it? Um, We'll turn back again to Judges chapter 19, and you'll find out a bit more. But did you see the big things? The spirit rushes upon Saul. Saul summons the people, and he himself lines up behind Samuel, behind the prophets. The people gather as one man, and the Lord gives them a great victory, and Nahash is overthrown. And then to seal the deal they go to Gilgal. And Gilgal, guess what? It's a town that's famous in the Bible for one thing. Do you know where Gilgal's famous for being? It's the place where the people of Israel first entered the promised land. 
And do you know what the name Gilgal means? It means roll back. And do you know why it's called roll back? Because when the people first entered the promised land, it was named for the fact that the Lord had rolled back their reproach. He had rolled back their shame. And so they go to Gilgal and they roll away the reproach and renew the kingdom. Then Samuel said, verse 14, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. It is a great renewal. You know, I used to read that verse. I, I thought it was just talking about Saul's kingdom. You know, they kind of tried to appoint Saul as king and some people weren't sure and so now they're renewing the kingdom. But I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right. Jabesh Gilead and Gilgal and Judges and Joshua and Nahash. The kingdom that we're really talking about here is the kingdom of the Lord. In chapter 8, they broke the kingdom. They said they don't want God as their king. They went another king instead of him. And here, well, here the kingdom of the Lord has been restored in the place where the Lord first took the people into the promised land, Gilgal. And so they proclaim Saul as king before the Lord, and they offer peace offerings before the Lord, and they rejoice and Saul credits the Lord as the one who gave them salvation. And of course, what the Lord wants them to understand, and what he wants us to understand here this morning, is that renewal, reversal, rolling back of reproach, those things can only come from him. Now, they thought they needed a king instead of God's, now, the whole shape of 1 Samuel 9 to 11 is there to show that the only kind of king that will be any use to them at all is one directed by God, chosen by God, empowered by God, given victory by God. With a human king or without a human king, Israel's only actual hope of renewal is the Lord's. Trust in God's is their only hope in renewal. Obedience to God is their only hope of renewal. Renewal will only come from a king empowered by the king. And now, of course, uh, we're in an Old Testament picture here. And in God's kindness, before the Lord Jesus came, he set up the kingdom of Israel as a kind of visual aid um, of what the gospel would one day be. Um, and that's why we have this story here of a king fighting battles with actual swords against actual enemies militarily. On this side of the Lord Jesus, um, there is no call for Christians uh, to take up arms and to fight God's battles uh, to achieve God's purposes in the world uh, with force of weapons. Um, our arms, our weapon, is the word of God, the gospel, and a godly life and prayer. And so when we talk about renewal being empowered by the king, of course that renewal will never for Christians look like striding into battle, even if Vladimir Putin thinks otherwise. But with all of those pieces in place, 
the big lesson is the same. If we want renewal, if we want renewal, it will only come through the power of the king. Of course, if you're a Christian here this morning, you will know that we have that king. He has been lifted up from anonymity to the right hand of God's. He's so anointed with the Spirit that he's poured out the Spirit on all of God's people. He's won a victory over the ultimate snake king and rolled back our reproach. And he is the source of an eternal salvation. And Saul is here in 1 Samuel, at least this bit of 1 Samuel, um, to give us a glimpse of what the living Lord Jesus would one day be. As Christians, we know that the great renewal, the great reversal, comes through the Lord Jesus. But, but you know that the fact that the Lord Jesus has come, it does not soften the choice that this passage puts before us one little bit. In fact, if anything, the fact that the Lord God has come to be the human king only intensifies it. And so let me ask the question again, where do we think that renewal in our time will come from? We need it. Our constituency needs it. Our denomination needs it. London needs it. God knows that our country needs it. Our schools and universities and workplaces need need it. You might even say we need revival. Where do we think renewal will come from? You know, we have a choice. On the one hand, we can accept the lie that God is dead. We can believe that the Lord is a king who makes no functional difference. Jesus has no power to build his church through his words, and the spirit is not amongst us. And you know what? We sometimes think that, don't we? And if we believe that, then of course we will have to secure our future by finding a king like the nation's and by stepping towards the world, a leader who impresses the cricket club, or a message that plays well with young people. We're trying to persuade the world out there to join us, or at least to let us be, but with no power, with no power. Of course we'll have to change to survive. Of course we'll have to step towards the world. Or, and here's the alternative, the word of God might persuade us that the living God, the giving God, the God of Israel lives, that the Lord Jesus lives, and that his spirit is amongst us. And renewal will come from him. His power, his grace, his words. What matters is loyalty to him, obedience to him. Of course, it's what Chloe and Lizzie and um, Isaac's baptisms were all about. The living Lord Jesus raises the dead. Of course, renewal comes from him. But it seemed to me, it seemed to me that this is a good word for us at the moment, right now. Do we as a church believe that renewal will only come by the power of the Spirit of God? And do you know what the acid test is for whether we actually believe that? It's not that we cluck at the manoeuvrings of the House of Bishops. 
It's not that we roll our eyes at the next round of electoral hysteria. It's not that we tut at the fall of another Pentecostal celebrity pastor, or that we write blogs, or even preach sermons about the current leadership crisis in even English evangelicalism. And I'm prone to all of those things. But I think none of those things is the real sign that I actually understand where renewal will come from. Now, the sign that I understand that renewal comes from the power, the spirit, the kingdom, the proclaimed gospel word of the Lord is that I get out my Bible and then I get on my knees and I pray. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Hannah and for Samuel and for Jonathan and for David's, who were all marked by their trust in your kingship and by their prayer. And we pray that you would help each one of us to understand that our hope for individual renewal and for the renewal of the whole world and for renewal for the gospel in our time, that it comes from you We pray that we'd give ourselves to prayer. And Father, we ask that in your great mercy, you would restore, um, keep restoring a church in this country um, that will boldly proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus and that you will continue to bring a harvest of gospel fruits. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.